Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools are here every week at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. And we define it every week. You might think that we're a bit repetitive, but the definition is actually very important. Public education must be public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it must be public in access it must be available for every child, whatever their background. Anything else segregates children and you are on the way to apartheid. And we're going to be talking about that a bit later today. It should also be public in funding because it's the only one that's accountable and it should be owned by the people. It should be public in ownership not public-private partnership with taxpayers paying for the next 20 years for the schools that are being built today. And it should be public in control. Now, these ideas, these ideas of the public good and public education are under great threat in the new world order of corporatocracy. We are seeing the results of corporatocracy in its very nasty form in America at the moment. But don't worry, in its less obvious form, it is with us alive and well in Australia. And we can see it with our current so-called Liberal government, Conservative government, call it what we will, pulling against different people within it, pulling against each other. But let's go to America. Our press release on our website at www.adogs.info has on it a press release 695. Betsy DeVos links historically black colleges with school choice. Educational apartheid and or segregation on the basis of race is dressed up as choice. The American president and his education secretary, with, by the way, Kellyanne Conway, the press secretary, sitting on a sofa with legs tucked under her, as one wag noted, double amputee survivor of Bowling Green Massacre, (laughs) had a photo op meeting with the presidents of the nation's 17 historically black colleges and universities. The meeting was only brief, Perhaps that's why uh, Sally-Anne, or Kellyanne, I'm sorry, uh, was being very uh, interesting, sitting on her knees uh, in a nearby sofa. 
But um, it was also there, they were having it, because these colleges are going to come directly under the White House administration and possibly going to leave the uh, education department. In fact, there's a question as to whether there will be a federal education department at all. Uh, Betty DeVos has said that she's quite happy to be done out of a job. But that is not completely relevant to what happened next. Uh, there were only a very few presidents f- from these colleges who were allowed to speak and they were given one minute each. So, as you might expect, um, the White House, uh, Mr Trump, is very, very controlling of anything that deals with other people. And these are definitely other people. But more time was provided to the Education Secretary, Betty DeVos, And she fulsomely praised the nation's historically black colleges and universities. And she called them pioneers of the school choice movement. This is what she said. HBCUs, that is historically black colleges and universities, are real pioneers when it comes to school choice. They are living proof that when more options are provided to students, they are afforded greater access and greater quality. Their success has shown that more options help students flourish. So listeners, we have here with Daddy DeVos, as we have also in Australia, people who are quite happy to rewrite history to fit in with their ideological frameworks. Uh, the, the dogs have found this again and again and again. In our own High Court case back in 1981, we found the High Court judges, six of them, having a very limited, very restrictive view of Australian history of church and state. But we won't go there for the moment. This is Betty DeVos, who has the same view. She has an ideological view, and she's fitting these historically-backed colleges and universities into her framework. Her statement, however, promoted calls for the need for her to have a few history lessons. The overwhelming majority of these black schools were founded after the Civil War and they provided educational opportunities to blacks during the Jim Crow era when African Americans were shut out of institutions that catered to whites. Critics noted that the schools were necessary because of the Plessy versus Ferguson decision that allowed racial segregation and forced black students into separate schools in the first place. And of course, the people who know their history, and the Americans do know their history, her Betty DeVos's um, ideological view sparked the predictable reaction. The Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill of Missouri called the statement totally nuts in a tweet. Totally nuts. DeVos pretending that establishment of historically black colleges was about choice, not racism, she wrote. Democratic Senator Bob Casey of Pennsylvania, who serves as the ranking member of the Committee on Health, Education, Labor and Pensions, also denounced the statement on Twitter. 
So other people beside Mr Trump can use Twitter, apparently. No. Secretary DeVos, the segregation and inequality that forced the establishment of HBCUs is not a model of school choice, he wrote. To many, the intended argument didn't survive the contradiction of associating these historically black colleges and universities born out of necessity when black Americans were almost uniformly barred from existing universities by racist admittance policies with the idea of choice. The representative Barbara Lee, who's the Democrat from California, said that the comment was, Tone deaf. Yesterday's attempt to whitewash the stain of segregation into an argument for privatising our public schools is perhaps a new low in her current position, said the Michigan congressman John Conyers, who also called the statement shocking and insulting. The comparison was also awkward because the issue of school choice virtually always refers not to colleges but to K-12 education where traditionally students are assigned to a public school district according to their address. But school choice is the foundation of DeVos's public education agenda. As, dear listeners, it is the foundation of Birmingham's and Abbott's and Turnbull's and the Liberal Party and sections of the Labor Party who've gone along for the the ride for 40, 50 years in Australia. The billionaire education secretary in America, with no formal background in the field, has long been a proponent of allowing parents to opt out of public schools. In the same way, dear listeners, as our Lib Labs in Canberra and our Lib Labs at the state level have been doing here in Australia for the last 50 years. Most experts in the field counter that school voucher systems and other similar programs tend to exacerbate the unequal distribution of educational resources. And the Australian experiment proves them correct. These schemes do nothing to help our most vulnerable students while they ignore or exacerbate glaring opportunity gaps, argued the National Education Association in November in reaction to her nomination by Donald Trump. Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is a reporter who's written extensively on school segregation in the United States, added that much of the contemporary conservative rhetoric there about school choice is actually a function of the same racist, segregationist impulses that made these HBCUs necessary in the 19th century US. And here in Australia, of course, it was the Roman Catholic Church and other churches that segregated our children, as well as the missions that segregated out our Aboriginal population. In many places in the country, the push for school choice has been pioneered by white parents seeking to remove their children from integrated or predominantly black public schools. And the white flight has also been seen here in Sydney and Melbourne in particular. DeVos's statement comes, somewhat ironically, as Trump signs an executive order to relocate the White House initiative 
on HBCUs, that is, these historically black colleges and universities, a program that's existed since, since 1980, to the White House. It had previously been administered by DeVos's Department of Education, but it's now going to be led by an official who reports to a senior advisor to the President. Australians have long noted that the argument for choice is a rationalisation of segregation with underlying religious, class and ethnicity criteria. But America, with its historical roots deep in the slave trade, as well as revolutionary enlightened values and a civil war, can see exactly what public funding of private choice actually means. It leads to segregation. It leads to inequalities. It leads to a downgrading of educational opportunities. And it leads to class and other apartheids. If American public school supporters wish to see where their education secretary is taking them, they should come to Australia and look at our last half century of educational mismanagement and decline and the undermining of separation of religion in the state. Uh, so that's the end of our press release, but I'd like to note that Ray Nielsen always used to say that the Americans were um, sitting and not realising what could happen when church and state was undermined, the separation, and that they should come and look at what has happened in Australia. But it looks as if they are going to uh, put it on fast forward and not only have segregation along the lines of class, but also along the lines of race. So uh, we'll have a bit of a break now. And uh, there's lots and lots uh, on this on the, on the American websites and uh, I suggest that you go and have a look at them because in America, when Betty DeVos speaks, there is reaction and don't think for one moment that her life is going to be an easy one. In the same way, of course, as we shouldn't let our education ministers' lives be easy or for that matter the leaders of our churches who have uh, engaged in abuse of children. But we'll have a bit of a break and go back to having something from David Kinsella's uh, CD on eloquence. Let's have the sweet in C major and let's have the courant.
Well, that was David Kinsella playing the Curon from the Suite in C Major by Clarenbolt. Uh, we heard some of this suite last week and we're going through it. We hope that you enjoy uh, the music that we're playing from the Enlightenment uh, on a harpsichord of two manuals by David Evans after Pascal Tuscan. That this uh, beautiful harpsichord was built by this master craftsman uh, in 1985 and it was played by David Kinsella. So you are listening to The Dogs Program, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools. And I referred to the American developments, particularly the undermining of church and state, and we have seen where that leads to in Australia. I've had a very interesting week because I've become very much aware that there is further legal work being done in Sydney, not in Melbourne, uh, by legal eagles in the universities up there. And they are questioning the results of the dogs case. But a lot of them don't seem to have read my book on the dogs case and realise that in those days, and still, there are in fact uh, churches that are being built alongside and church, uh, church schools are being used as churches. Uh, and this was part of our argument when we went to the court because there has in fact been a case where a, a school was built together with a mosque and this was stopped and Section 116 was looked at by a Supreme Court in New South Wales. So people are asking, why did the High Court read the uh, Establishment Clause of Section 116 in such a restrictive way, particularly given the ideals and the ideas and the intentions of the people in the original Constitutional Convention? So it's being rethought academically. But I'd like to say that I notice that here in Australia, the High Court is very reluctant to find any case on Section 116. They usually run for cover to something which is technical uh, in a piece of legislation. However, the dogs always argued that religious schools were that. They were religious institutions there might be schools, but they are certainly religious institutions. Otherwise, why have them? Why are they there? Why can't Catholic and Anglican and Uniting Church and uh, Arabic and other children, Islamic children, why can't they go to public schools? They have them for religious reasons and they select children on religious criteria. But uh, we've had a, a very interesting development up in New South Wales. This is what you don't hear down in, in Victoria as yet. The Sydney Morning Herald reports on February the 24th that the Catholic Church has got a problem. It has to pay out all of these uh, young people whom it abused years ago, compensation. And it doesn't look as if the... Commonwealth or the state governments are going to come to the party and pay out for them. They did in Ireland, 
In Ireland, the church argued that the state was responsible. It funded the schools and it was responsible for paying out the children who had suffered abuse uh, in compensation. But here, uh, it looks as if our state governments and our Commonwealth governments are a bit reluctant to come to this party. So what is the church doing? Catholic schools in the Hunter and Mid-North Coast could, for the first time, be asked to pay rent to the church for the land that they stand on under proposals being considered by the Diocese of Maitland, Newcastle. Well, if they're being asked to pay rent to the church, then the church owns them. And that's what we argued in the court case. But this is what nobody wanted to hear and still wants to, nobody wants to hear. So uh, state aid will go to these schools which will then pay that state aid in rent to the church. The initiative is encountering resistance from some Catholic educators who fear such a plan risks diverting a portion of government funds intended for Catholic schooling into the administrative coffers of the church. (laughs) Well, of course it does, and it always has. There's absolutely no proof that it doesn't actually do this, particularly when you have schools which have churches being used by the local people within them. And we proved that this was happening up in the in Churchill, in the Gippsland, and we proved that it was happening in Geelong. And, and Justice Murphy picked it up, but nobody else has. So, of course, they've been going on their merry way and doing it all the time. Currently, no Catholic schools in any of the 11 dioceses in New South Wales pay rent to church authorities officially. Any decision to proceed would set a new precedent generating potentially millions of dollars for diocesan funds. The majority of Catholic educationists are privately appalled at the approach being taken, one source told the Herald. It would not pass in the court of public opinion. Many of us fear that it would imperil legitimate claims for government funding of Catholic education if it was perceived those funds were being diverted to provide a revenue stream for the church. Well, we can tell you that um, it has been going on, particularly in matters like uh, the payment of electricity bills and so on. Internal critics fear any move to start extracting rents from Catholic schools might be used to help bolster church finances against claims for compensation for the victims of child sex abuse within the church. But the New South Wales Catholic Education Commission insists that all government grants going through the Catholic system are subject to order, audit and to not-for-profit safeguards. Well, uh, we sincerely hope that it's better up in New South Wales than down here in Victoria. Subject because, to Well, yes. That, uh, what, that, they're trying to say that they're accountable. <laughs> yes, well, I would, I would suggest that they have their own auditors mm-hmm. um, and that, of course, we do have a Charities Commission in Canberra now, but um, the people who run that are acceptable to the uh, Catholic bishops. Oh. And, uh, yes, There's so we role. wonder about all of that. So I thought that that was quite an interesting little bit of uh, mm. sidelines. And uh, I thought that people might be interested to know what is actually going on in New South Wales, which has a very um, a quite aggressive rationalist uh, and um, 
Humanist Society. Uh, I get their stuff on the in the email, and I'm very interested. And in fact, I found this out from them. So there's, uh, they also have a thing called a Vatican Watch, which they get from England. So there's a very interesting developments in church-state separation here in Australia and, of course, in the United States. Freedom of conscience, freedom from religion as freedom as well as freedom of religion is a very basic freedom and it uh, certainly intersects with the public education issue. So uh, that's uh, very interesting. We have some other material here too, but uh, we'll have another little break for a gavotte this time. Well, there we had a gavotte. Uh, David um, Kinsella playing his clarin port uh, from the Sweet in Sea, and that was the gavotte. And this is the dogs program. And this today, and I'm sorry we haven't got Robert here, but today we're concentrating on the way in America they are following Australia and segregating through choice their children. They are in danger of doing this. And uh, Betty DeVos has been trying to rewrite history, <laughs> a, a pretty horrible history of uh, racism uh, and trying to dress it up as choice. Mm. Now, there's been a, a concern here in Australia about choices. There are children who want to have the choice of getting an attar and going to school and doing a VCE. But in our schools at the moment, we have within the schools, both private and public, but mainly private actually, a difference between the academic stream and the tradie stream. And we have children who are being told uh, that they can either leave the school or they can not do the VCE because the schools have to look after their reputation. And this is happening more in private schools than it is in our public schools, but it's certainly happening. They thought I'd become a tradie. Why schools lock students out of VCE? Now, this had been happening, of course, and uh, to stop it happening, Jean Blackburn thought she'd do away 
with our old technical schools. But the technical schools here in Australia, in, in, in Victoria itself, actually produced some very good graduates for our universities, particularly for the engineering faculties. The standard of maths in some of our technical schools in the upper grades was phenomenal. And Jean Blackburn did away with that. And uh, I think that she should actually be blamed for it. She is. Um, she has been lauded, and people remember her. Uh, and one shouldn't speak ill of the dead. But um, I'm afraid that I was very much against the, uh, the 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 technical schools being done away with, because some of them were doing fabulous uh, work with alternative curricula and actually giving children real opportunities. But no, in this new dual curriculum situation, children are being stopped from getting an ATAR and having the opportunity for tertiary education. So why do schools lock students out of the VCE? As competition intensifies, insiders are saying that some schools are putting their reputation ahead of their students' best interests. And students with poorer grades in the lower areas of the high schools are being pressured to do VCAL, particularly in private high schools. Others are being pushed to do an unscored VCE, whatever that means, and that lets the students finish school without the stress of exams, which means that they have no ATAR. And it is that ATAR, it is that number that is put on a child, which uh, gives them a way forward. These tactics have improved the data high-performing schools that they're so desperate to promote. Their median study score and percentage of study scores of 40 or above. But gaming the system comes at a cost for students most of all. To start with, students without an ATAR struggle to get into many university courses, but they also lose something less tangible, perhaps something much more important. They lose their self-worth. The psychologist and a former teacher, Dr Kevin Quinn, met dozens of students at his school who were barred from sitting exams at their previous schools due to the huge pressure to improve VCE scores. What happens, of course, is that when parents realise that their children are being asked to pay at private schools so that others can get higher VCEs and their children are damned, they take them elsewhere. Mr Quinn... Uh, worked at a school in Shepparton, a Catholic school, offering a program for disengaged students. But it, he said that it had a profound psychological effect when children were uh, stopped from doing VCE. They feel rejected and they feel like failures, he says. A Fairfax Media Analysis of Victorian Curriculum and Assessment Authority data shows the Victorian students undertook 11,076 unscored VCE subjects in 2015. And last year, 1747 students completed their VCE without getting an ATAR score. They did the VCE, but they didn't do the exams. So Dean's relieved that he finished school 
with an attar. This is a boy who was told that he couldn't do the VCE, but he still did it. Despite his teacher's repeated attempts to persuade him to do VCAL, he insisted on doing the VCE and he received an attar of 53. And when asked, the school, his school didn't want to provide comment. But his favourite subject, VCE Media, inspired him to pursue a career in directing. Because his teacher, his individual teacher, encouraged him and allowed him to take the risks. So uh, they found another, the Fairfax Media found another student, Ryan Harvey. He was among dozens of students in his year level at another school who were robbed of an ATAR. Despite two years of VCE study in which he showed up to class and passed assignments, Ryan agreed to finish his Year 12 without an ATAR because obviously they thought that he wouldn't get that magic 40 and above. If I could do it again, I would have just done the exam, he says. A teacher at Ryan's school who did not want to be named says these students were victims of a sophisticated scheme to weed out underperforming kids. The school targeted the kids who were getting D and E and pulled them out of class. Now the VCAA acknowledges that there's been an increase in the number of students undertaking unscored VCE subjects over the past two years and it's considering publishing detailed data on individual schools. Let's have it. Its VCE rules state that not attempting graded tests may limit a student's options for further training, study and work. The principal of Oakwood School, David Roycroft, says the unscored VCE was meant for students facing a personal crisis or who were too anxious to sit their exams. And he says that while VCAL is terrific in building vocational skills, it should not be the default option for students with low grades. If the student's thinking that they're heading towards tertiary study, then they should be doing a VCE program regardless of their grades. A principal at another school who didn't want to be named says that schools are fudging their data. He said that students were told that the unscored VCE took the pressure off year 11 and 12 because they didn't have to sit exams and could finish earlier. So they dangle all these little carrots in front of them, he says. It can be a significant benefit to the school because they're not going to drag down the school's results. And Victorian Association of State School Secondary Principals President Judy Crow says that the unschooled VCE and VCAL are legitimate and valuable options, but only if VCE suits students who do not cope with exams, those with physical, emotional or intellectual health difficulties. And VCAL should only suit those who have a clear idea of what they want to do vocationally. She says parents often put pressure on their children to do VCE when they would do be better suited to do VCAL. But uh, children themselves should make the decision, shouldn't they? They are nearly 18, a lot of these children. If they can vote, then one would think that they could make some kind of decision about their future and take risks. Uh, and some people say, well, look, if we hadn't done our VCE, then 
And they're quite right. University would not be an option. So why should children be deprived of an option if that's what they want? If he hadn't done his VCE, one boy said, I would have gone straight to work and wouldn't study another day in my life. Well, he may not even get a job. So uh, that's all very interesting. And now Dale is going to read you what The Age said in an editorial because uh, this is a real, a very real um, concern, I think, for parents and students who are in our schools here in Victoria right at this moment. They are being, if you think about it, discriminated against and segregated on the basis of what the school thinks is their potential in the school's interest as far as the school's reputation is concerned. And as we know, um, when schools are set against school, as we have in the jungle that our governments have created with this notion of choice, Mm. it is the students who are suffering. But over to Dale. Thanks, Jean. Yeah, I've got uh, the age from an editorial from the age on Tuesday, February 28 this year. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah, very much the, the headline says it all, I guess. Uh, schools sacrificing kids on academic altar. The education system is pivotally, pivotally important to young people, their families and carers, and to our society and economy. The paramount priority is the well-being of students, which is not only about academic performance. It also requires providing a supportive, fair setting in which to help young people thrive and explore their broad potential, as well as navigate one of the most challenging periods of life. There's nothing, more, there's nothing most parents care more about than their children. This is reflected in the keen response to an investigation which continues on Tuesday by our education team, Henrietta Cook and Timna Jacks, into schools that exclude underperforming or challenging students to protect their reputation in an increasingly competitive market. The overarching finding is that students' interests are sometimes being compromised as independent and government schools in their competitive drive for reputation and funding cynically deter many from sitting Year 12 exams. This crude strategy to manipulate median final scores is cruelly marginalising students who, with appropriate support, could successfully complete school and embark on a tertiary education. There's an inherent tension in the system. Schools attract enrolments and then fees and funding based on their academic results. It is lamentable that the Victorian Certificate of Applied Learning, VCAL, the well-regarded vocationally focused alternative to the Victorian Certificate of Education, VCE, is apparently being misused and disrespected by schools to divert students from sitting their final academic exams. Students are also being pushed into doing the unscored VCE and foregoing an ATAR to artificially increase a school's VCE results. Students should be able to have confidence that the counsel they receive at school is in their best interest. The Victorian Curriculum and Assessment Authority is rightly investigating why there has been a rise in students doing unscored VCE amid these concerns. It's not the only probe. The state ombudsman is examining complaints that families are are having difficulty appealing expulsions and finding alternative enrolments for their children. 
The watchdog is also investigating a surge in expulsions at state schools and whether vulnerable young people are overrepresented. The state government has initiated a program to help disengaged students, but more can be done. In a recent review of educational funding, former Victorian Premier Steve Brax commented that funding for early school leavers be augmented, a change we support. We also believe students and parents need more than raw academic data, which they get from National Assessment Program Literacy and Numeracy, or NAPLAN testing, and published VCE results on which to base their choices of school. It would be helpful to know what proportion of Year 12 students have been in their school since, say, Year 7, and how many students enrolled in unscored VCE subjects at individual schools. The media, too, have a role to play. As well as celebrating the top academic performers, prominence should also be given to those who have excelled in vocational and technical training. Students' self-esteem is fundamental to their well-being. Clearly, the system needs adjusting to give preeminence to students' needs. One of the best ways, as our investigation underscores, is to listen carefully to young people. Yes, schools must focus in large part on academic achievement, but if they do so by betraying students who deserve and want support, then they are failing inexcusably. And that pretty much it, it's, it goes against the whole idea of education, doesn't it? It's, it's almost like the, in, the institution is there for its own sake, not to actually achieve anything on behalf of society. Yes, um, I've got here in front of me Sydney Morning Herald on the 1st of March, uh, Ross Gittins, who's always worth reading. Um, he's an economist, but he has very in- interesting insights, and he's supposed to be giving uh, the Australian College of Educators, Jean Blackburn, oration in Melbourne. Uh, well, he has given it, but he's done a bit of research on it. He's drawn on Trevor Cobalt's work, which we, we uh, give you here a lot on, on 3CR, but he also has something to say about um, new a new technique for ensuring schools spend whatever they get as effectively as possible. Uh, Birmingham, of course, keeps on going on about this and we've come to the conclusion that for Birmingham and Turnbull and Abbott and uh, Pine, these people who have private schools in their DNA including, I suspect, Plibersek up in uh, New South Wales, who is very scared of taking on the private school interest. Their view is, at the end of the day, for unto everyone that hath shall be given. Uh, But this is very interesting. There is a person called Goss who's been doing research and he says you could improve outcomes with targeted teaching. It's Goss of the Grattan Institute who says that teachers should be provided with the time, tools and training they need to collect robust evidence of student learning, discuss it with other teachers and use it to target their teaching to the wide range of student learning needs in their classroom. Any of us who have been confronted with 25 to 40 students in one classroom understands that if you're lucky you might reach somewhere in the middle when you're teaching them. And yet all of those students have their own learning techniques and requirements and needs. 
Now, higher achieving students should be stretched, lower achieving students should be supported to catch up, and no student who stalls should go unnoticed. The school fosters a culture of progress in which teachers, students and parents see learning success as being about effort and improvement, not ability and attainment, and see assessment just as a way to improve and not to expose student failure. Because the best schools in Australia and the best classrooms in Australia are not necessarily those with the best ATAR or NAPLAN scores, as we seem to think these days, as as Robert continually says, if it moves, you can test it. But those that enable their students, these are the good schools, those that enable their students to make the greatest progress in learning. Because isn't this what a teacher is really about? A teacher is really about getting their students learning, learning and thinking for themselves. The goal is for each student to have made at least a year's worth of progress every year. So I thought you'd be interested in that um, because I know teachers who are able to do that and I've met teachers who have done that and I have met teachers who have come from the Catholic into the state system because they were fed up with seeing the poorer students, the students who didn't have that much money or the students who were not as able, had the uh, same ability as the cleverer ones, paying for the others to get special opportunities. But in the state system, we believe that every child is a gifted child. Every child has its own gifts and that child should be developed to its greatest potential. Yes, let's have a bit of music. This time, David Kinsella with his books to Huda, and then we'll be back.
teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm proud product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Before we sign off, uh, we really do need to refer you to the uh, reports that have been made on the Gonski funding, which is under threat despite positive outcomes. Jane Caro uh, has written again, and this is in the Saturday paper. The Saturday paper and The Guardian are very good sources for those who are interested in public education news. She writes as follows. Lithgow is a small New South Wales town on the wrong side of the Blue Mountains, if you consider Sydney to be the right side. Once it was a thriving coal mining community. Actually, listeners, I can tell you that uh, the Lithgow mines were used in the Second World War for um, stockpiling ammunition in case we had to engage in guerrilla warfare when the Japanese came down. So that was Lithgow. That's how I know about Lithgow. But with the mines largely played out, and they have been for some time, it has a declining population and a high percentage of families doing it tough because, of course, over there in Lithgow, the, the housing wouldn't be as expensive as it is in Sydney. In 2016, 112 students were studying for their HSC at Lithgow High and they visited the everyday, all-day senior tuition centre in the school library. And these visits added up to 22,135 sessions and the investment paid off. The HSC results in 2016 were the highest they've been in years and 13 students achieved results in the highest band, 52 in the second highest, 45 students received university offers and two in engineering and one in medicine. Now this tuition, this everyday all-day tuition, was made possible by Gonski funding. It was generous because 52% of the school's students were in the lowest socioeconomic quartile and 26% were in the second lowest. And Gonski money sensibly follows need. So this was Gonski money doing the right thing for a change. It wasn't vouchers either. The two student learning support officers who ran the senior tuition in the library were paid for by Gonski. In other words, as taxpayers, our investment paid off too. So there were jobs there. Australia's used the education funding until as recently as 2014 to increase gaps rather than close them. She knows this because her sister, who is Anne Caro, not Jane Caro, is the principal of Lithgow High School. She was understandably cock-a-hoop when she told me about her students' results and this made Jane Caro curious. What were other high schools serving disadvantaged students doing with their Gonski funding and what results were they starting to see? So 
since the most reliable predictor of school success was the socioeconomic status of a child's parents, the higher the status, the better the kid does, and this is true the world over. But when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. People who've done well in the world are generally well-educated, confident about their ability to succeed, and if all that were not enough, can afford to offer their children extra help. And children follow their parents' leads. If mum and dad value education and feel comfortable in a school environment, their children generally will as well. Unless, of course, the children react unfavourably. Now, universal free secular and public education was created to do something about the poor children. It always was, as early as 1844, when they discovered that the vast majority of children in New South Wales were not being educated and the ones that were were being given an inferior sectarian education in church-run schools. So they decided to do something about it. And over the century, we did do something about it. In 1900, we led the world. But it was a big ask. It's always a big ask. And it's never completely succeeded. But it's no coincidence that some of the most successful countries academically have among the lowest equity gaps between their advantaged and disadvantaged students and Australia is no longer, and I say no longer, in their company. Why? Because we diverted the funds that should have gone into public education into private, sectarian, apartheid, racist. You call it education. That is what private choice education is. So um, the Jane Coe article's worth looking at uh, and you'll find it in the Saturday paper of last week and there, are, there is also The Four Great Myths of Gonski by Ross Gittins uh, in the February 25th Guardian. Before we sign off, Dale has reminded me, go to our website at www.adogs.info if you want to find more about the dogs. But... If you want to rehear this program, you'll be able to get it on a podcast on 3CR's uh, website. But from Dale and I, it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't 
standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes says Joe what they can never kill went on to organize went on to organize from San Diego up to Maine in every mine and mill where workers strike and organize it's there you'll find your hill it's there you'll find your hill I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night alive as you and me says I but Joe You're ten years dead I never died, says he